Stereo Color TV CB call 6451196 for the most ridiculous prices ever during Crazy Eddie's Christmas sale in August. It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and right now you're going to be hearing Ruvan Blau, senior reporter for the city. Hi, Ruvan. Hello. Hey, in conversation with Gary Weiss, the author of the truly fantastic Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. That's Eddie Antar, a Syrian Jew from Brooklyn, who, unlike his TV ad avatar, uh, the guy who played Crazy Eddie in all those commercials, some of you will remember, preferred to stay off camera and out of the headlines. And the book lays out in vivid detail the story of, like, cash, corruption, and chutzpah in making this fortune from, like, an electronics store on King's Highway in an insular family business. And, like, a little sales tax fraud, a little insurance fraud, uh, this, a little that. And suddenly you have a chain that's uh, ripped off suppliers, insurers, investors, customers, and the tax man and grows into this inescapable presence around new york city on its airwaves and then in the stock market until this nine-figure fraud eventually collapses under the weight of its own bullshit uh gary welcome let's jump right in do you want to tell the uh listeners a little bit about uh crazy eddie and uh what led you to this story sure sure well first of all thanks very much for having me delighted to be here and uh talking about crazy eddie uh, you know, as you point out, you, know, you use uh, some very interesting image, imagery there. I mean, uh, uh, Crazy Eddie was kind of a kind of a casserole of fraud, but most people in New York didn't know it as a fraud. They knew it as this commercial that was all over the airwaves, radio and television, famous TV ads. You know, our prices are insane. You know, screaming TV ads, which were promoting a, an electronics store. Um, that was all over the um, all over the eastern seaboard, really, from Philadelphia all the way up into New England. Uh, sold all kinds of uh, consumer electronics gear. Promised the lowest prices, didn't quite deliver, and um, it was quite a presence all over the place. You know, the commercials were uh, were sort of groundbreaking in a way. This is now bad. This was back in the 1970s. You know, a different era in New York. And behind the scenes, as you pointed out, there was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a sort of casserole of fraud, sort of, um, quite a bit of insurance fraud, a lot of sales tax fraud in the beginning. And then they graduated into the big time, securities fraud, 
That was a federal crime. Well, there's a lot of federal crimes. So this is the kind of federal crime that they sometimes prosecute. You know, even in the 70s, even in the 80s, 90s, this is something they really prosecuted. Uh, insider trading, uh, money laundering, oh my God, all kinds of stuff. And um, eventually, uh, that was the result that caused the downfall of Eddie Antar, the uh, mastermind, uh, who... Um, you know, as you mentioned, was a Dosisian uh, of a uh, Syrian Jewish family, um, and uh, I, you know, the details of the story were, uh, uh, in my opinion, has made it one of the most interesting stories, maybe the most interesting story I've ever pursued. Many years in in journalism, and uh, you know, it was just such a such a multifaceted, very colorful story. A lot of a lot of fun to work on. Well, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy though. Gary, I guess that brings me to the first question, Gary. Like, how did you? Sure. How did you come up with the idea? Like, how did you get involved? And and also, how long did it take to kind of put this all together for you? Yeah, well, it took quite a few years. Uh, if you look in the uh, in the back where I have my my copious footnotes, copious endnotes, you can see that I conducted interviews. My gosh, as as early as uh, two thousand seven for this book, and I only actually started writing it in twenty twenty twenty. You know, so it gives you an idea of how long it took for me to accomplish it. I I, I what happened was I. I became acquainted online with a guy called Sam Antar. Uh, he was the accountant. He was the chief financial officer of Crazy Eddie. And since the downfall of Crazy Eddie in the early 1990s, he'd become sort of a freelance uh, fraud buster, you know, uh, working as a consultant for uh, uh, for the government and for companies. And, you know, he reached out to me and we you know, we got to know each other somewhat. And I started talking to him in, in, back in 2007 about, uh, you know, about possibly doing a book. But, uh, you know, it took a long time to pull everything together, really. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of disparate elements. And, uh, you know, it took a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of time. Not complaining, mind you, but it did take a lot of time. I just want to backtrack to you and just say, like, I read this book. Um, I absolutely loved it. I I, I can't oh, tell you like how much I could like recommend it to people listening. It's just, it's just an incredible story. Uh, it touches on so many sort of kind of larger issues. I think, um, mm. you know, it's kind of it seems like kind of almost a precursor to some of these other sort of larger scams that have gone on. Um, which brings me to like another question, just kind of a broader question about if you could just talk about just to like readers who might not have read it or you know just mm -hmm. a general kind of rundown of what how we kind of did this, like what, you know, what the scams were. I know there's kind of multiple levels here on that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, starting out, uh, you know, just as this little store and King's highway in Brooklyn, you know, he, uh, he was set up in business and his set up in the electronics business, which was pretty hot in those days. He was set up in 1969. You know, he got in on the ground floor, his set up in business by his father, Sam, Antar, Sam A, Sam, Sam M Antar. There were a lot of a lot of people with the same names. So he set up in this in this store in on Kings Highway. And he figured, yeah, how am I going to get people to come here and buy stuff in my store? What's going to differentiate me from everybody else? He said, well, you know, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to cut prices. But it was hard to cut prices in those days because the manufacturers wouldn't let you. They requ they required you to sell merchandise at uh, sort of the prices that they dictated, the list prices, the manufacturers suggested retail prices. It was, you know, now, now they can't do it. In those days, they could. So he, got, he found a way around that. He found suppliers. He, he found people who would sell uh, merchandise to him, brand name merchandise. And he figured, well, okay, how am I going to undercut the prices? So he did that. 
And this is just an example of the kind of frauds that he committed. Well, he did that by charging sales tax on the merchandise that he sold people at the King's Highway store. But he didn't pass on the sales tax that he collected to the government. Now, we're talking, you know, even in the 70s, we're talking 7%. You know, that's, that's quite a lot of sales. I mean, he just kept it, usually. And that gave him sort of a little bit of a, a little bit of wiggle room here. He was able to undercut other retailers because of this, this, this little bonanza he had every time he sold. Every time he sold, he collected the sales tax and kept it. So therefore, he was able to undercut the prices of merchant of, of retailers who didn't steal the sales tax. You know, if I mean if you're if you're selling something for a hundred dollars, you're collecting a hundred and seven. Okay, it enables you, you know, the seven dollars that you're that you're collecting gives you a bit of a cushion. You could actually, you know, charge less. Sometimes you could even charge less than the uh, than the cost uh, of the of the merchandise. But because you got this extra money, this extra sales tax, you could beat the competition. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of all the fraud, sales tax fraud. One of my favorite parts was when they talk about like kind of flooding the warehouse. Uh, can you talk mm. about that a little bit? I just I absolutely love that. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, you know, he was, you know, he was stealing sales tax and he was doing little stuff. I mean, by comparison with what he later did. And one of the things he did, as you mentioned, was uh, defrauding the insurance companies. You know, he did this with the blink of an eye. It was like fun almost, you know, uh, it was a federal crime, but ah, who you? Who's going to enforce a crime like that at a time when the city was burning to the ground, basically, in the 1970s? Nobody was going to. You know, there was massive insurance fraud going on all over the place. I mean, the South Bronx was burning, and a lot of that was due to deliberate arson and insurance fraud. So this was sort of like on the fringes. But he was committing insurance fraud every time there was a flood or there was a burglary. He wouldn't fake the floods and he wouldn't fake the burglaries. But every time that there was a flood, every time that there was a burglary, he would what you call spike the claim. He would exaggerate the claim. So if there was a flood, for instance, in one of his stores, uh, he would bring in hoses and he'd, he'd, he'd water down a, lot, a ton of merchandise in addition to what actually was damaged in the floods. And he would actually truck in merchandise from other stores slow-moving merchandise he truck into from other stores to the place where there was the flood and water everything down and he would do this over and over again because you know this watered down merchandise you know the, the insurance companies had a right to take it once they once they paid off the claim but they generally didn't i mean who the hell wants moldy boxes of old electronics so he would take those old moldy boxes of electronics he he put them away and then when there was another flood He'd bring those boxes of moldy merchandise and water them down again. And this would go on. And I'd be like sort of like a, like a carousel, you know, like in the airport. He'd be recycling merchandise for insurance fraud. I mean, it was almost funny, but uh, he got away with it. Never prosecuted for it. Never. So in some ways, right, to me, the, the center of the book is you have the, this son, the scion, who's got a store, who's got a whole number of stores, who's doing all these little frauds, if you will. So yeah. the sales tax stuff, uh, he's getting uh, merchandise you write about basically from a numbers operation in the Bronx. Mm. And, and then sort of forcing the manufacturers to come to them. At this point, there is this MSRP. So other people whisk their prices in their ads. He doesn't bother. He just says, check around and then come to us. We'll not be undersold. Um, and he's got this neck D, right? Like the 
the money he's taking out of the operation that the government doesn't know about, the sales tax and the other parts, and is, is squirreling that away. And that's sort of his, his stash. His father has a smaller stash. Um, and then Sam Anthar ends up with this idea that, that, that flips the whole thing, takes it to the next level, and maybe sets up the eventual inevitable destruction of this whole enterprise with an IPO. And at that point, right, you got stock analysts, all these people looking in and watching watching what you're doing. Auditors involved, uh, big big legal firms and accounting firms. So, how at that point does he cover up everything he's doing? How hard is that, and where does this take things? Well, yeah, yeah, as you say, as you point out, you know, the the big he went into the big time. You know, he had an IPO in 1984. I mean, this was this was going to be the big time. You know, he was going to they were going to make a ton of money. So in order to to really make this IPO shine, they fabricated profits. They fabricated profits by 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 manipulating the amount of money that they took out of the company, the amount of cash that they skimmed out of the company. You know, they were always skimming money. From the company, as you know, frankly, a lot of businesses were doing back in those days. Let's be frank about this, you know. But now they're they sneaking it back into the company, right? Yeah. This is well, that was like. later. You see, that was later. But what they mm-hmm. did originally, you see, in order to make their profit numbers really shine, they took less and less money out of the company in the in in the run up to the IPO, and this gave the appearance of massive increases in profits. Okay. Uh, you know, so they turned at two percent. I'm, you know, they, this is these are I'm, these are off the top of my head, but they turned like maybe a two percent increase year over year increase in profits into a twenty five percent year over year increase in profits, uh, and that made their 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 IPO prospectus look really fantastic. And they got away with it. You know, nobody really noticed it. Now later on, later on, they found. That all this fabrication, you know, it was sort of like causing them problems because you know once you start fabricating, you got to continue to fabricate because you know you're built, you're like you're 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 bulking up your uh, your financial statements. You got to continue to fabricate, or the whole thing, the bubble is going to burst. So you know they had to come up with various schemes in order to continue to increase to re- to to fabricate profits after they became a. A public company, and that's what one of the things they did was, you know, some of this money that they had uh, skimmed in years earlier, they pumped back in uh, to the company in order to fabricate sales that did not exist in profits. And they call this the Panama pump. That was a very unique form of of money laundering. It was a sort of a reverse money laundering. It was it was uh, really very clever, and that was thought up by uh, by Sam E. Antar Eddie's young cousin who was the fellow who introduced me to this to the story in the first place gary just backing it up a little bit also one of the things that jumped out of me in the reading the book was how involved he was in the ad process right and how you kind of revolutionary this was can you talk a little bit about that as well and also just the the one detail that i thought was incredible was how he didn't want to be mm-hmm. called crazy eddie like he was like upset about that crazy eddie's going bananas during crazy eddie's tv and video blowout blitz get anything get everything in tv and video on sale now crazy eddie his prices are bananas you know and it's just so this iconic part of his like identity in the end 
Yeah. Well, one of the great things about this story, you know, from a storyteller perspective, is that you have two two parallel tracks here. I mean, you've got the criminal track, you know, that we were just discussing. Then you got sort of the legitimate, it's kind of the legitimate track, the advertising track, the marketing track, which was really, you know, basically legitimate, basically uh, really the work of genius, you know, the whole crazy thing, even though it was kind of the shtick. The crazy shtick was very, very old. He put a new spin in it, did a, did a wonderful job. Eddie was very hands-on, at least initially, in the advertising. You know, everything, you know, he hired this guy to do the ads, and the fellow did a, did, a, did a really great job. The whole crazy Eddie concept, Eddie had thought up in the, in the 70s. He probably stole it from another merchant, but that doesn't matter. He did a wonderful job with it, but he didn't like to be considered crazy. You know, the, one of the commercials that they considered were, was going to say, Crazy Eddie, he's insane, or something like that. He said, no, I'm not insane. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly okay. I'm not okay. See, I mean, uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it was just a, an advertising line. So they changed it to Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane, you know. But he was very hands-on. In the early stages, he was very hands-on. He, he was a bit of a micromanager, as we would say now, in, in some of his uh, early, uh, you know, his early stuff uh, in terms of the advertising. But he hired some great people. But he's not who you'd see, right? Like, like when you when you see these old crazy Eddie ads, yeah, that's not Eddie Anta. Oh no, oh no, that's a fellow named Jerry Carroll, who was a disc jockey on WPIX FM, talented guy, great uh, disc jockey, you know, fast talking disc jockey, and he was just, he was just, he was just wonderful. He was just fantastic. That was that was Jerry Carroll. He was the face of Crazy Eddie. Basically a pretty shy guy, but, well, my God, when he was on those commercials, he was a... Uh, Insane! Different persona. And the cartoons from um, the, the iconic cartoon is also not so legitimate. It is uh, mm. very clearly borrowed, as the book shows, from an Art Crumb Zap cover, if I remember. Yeah, well, the, the uh, there's an iconic uh, image of uh, Crazy Eddie. You know, you see in all the ads. You saw on the IPO, you know, this this guy, this, sort of this goofy-looking guy. Um, and, gee, you wonder, uh, where did that come from? Uh, that's really some really great artwork. You know, you got to figure, well, you know, he really commissioned some wonderful art. Well, he stole that from uh, an R. Crumb uh, cartoon figure. In fact, he stole it off the cover of a, of a, of a comic that the R. Crumb had um, dreamed up a few years earlier he stole it just just totally stole it and by the way i should point out that mr crumb gave me a very nice blurb on the book you know just in case anyone you can go to amazon and read it he loved the book r crumb he's still around this wonderful guy but he stole this uh, he stole this image and r crumb figured ah, i don't want to bother with it ah, that's all right he didn't he didn't care very casual back in those days Gary, another part of the book that was really fascinating to me that I just absolutely loved also was just the family dynamics and yes. Debbie 1, Debbie 2. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And also, I'm just curious, like, what's been the reception from on their point of view, you know, from the book as well? Their point of view? I haven't really gotten much reception. You know, I heard some grumbling, you know, and uh, basically, I haven't really heard very much, frankly. I mean... Uh, I mean, look, you know, it's it's it, the you know the book is made basically out of out of public records, uh, meaning out of you know legal documents, you know, uh, tran court transcripts, court decisions. So how could they argue with it? You know, it's all based on on the public record. Not to, I'm just like not like relaying rumors, but the family background I think is really fascinating. I mean, the Antars came with a wave of. Syrian Jewish immigration in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, Syria was un undergoing upheaval during and after 
World War One. It's forgotten nowadays. But after World War One, the the Middle East was a was a mess. You know, Turkey was sort of still at war, sort of with the French and all this other stuff. So the Syrian Jewish community, they you know, they had to get out of there. It was not very pleasant being Syri- Jewish in Syria to begin with, anyway. Most of the Syrian Jewish community was in the t- city of Aleppo, which of course has now become rubble. Uh, major major city out by, out by Turkey, out by the Turkish border, and they emigrated in the early 20th century. And they they most of them, uh, of course, obviously they could not speak English. They only spoke Arabic. They could not speak Yiddish, which was the primary language of the Jewish community. So they sort of sort of went their own way and uh, did not go into our garment district and all this other sort of stuff that, you know, uh, Jews from Europe uh, had to go, sort of had to go into and became peddlers and merchants and remain. And the Syrian Jewish communities concentrated, sort of focused on that throughout the 20th century. And this is sort of the tradition, the mercantile tradition that Eddie inherited through the entire, you know, through his father and grandfather, his grandfather came over from Syria uh, one of the traditions uh, that they had was to, you know, you you set up your 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 sons or your, well, not your daughters. You don't do that. They, uh, set up your sons in business, in retailing. You set your son up in a store, and the community helps itself. And that's how Eddie wound up with his first store in uh, on Kings Highway. It was sort of the end result of a bunch of transactions that I point out. You know, within sort of the extended Antar family, um, and he benefited from it. But then after he became head of, of, of Crazy Eddie, although he shared the wealth, I mean, he hired people from the family, he was kind of stingy in terms of, you know, really distributing the wealth. And this resulted in friction. And that was kind of his downfall because he would not only cheated and abused his first wife, which I detail uh, in the book, it's all out of, as I say, out of court record, uh, he also kind of kind of cheated other relatives and, and his brothers. He didn't treat all that well, and this this constant fighting was one one of the main reasons for the downfall in the early nineties. Why he had to you know he had to get out of the he he fled to Israel you know and uh, they didn't want him there. Once they discovered it was there, anyway, they had to get rid of him. But it's. Uh, and it's sort of in a backwards way, sort of a very sort of a very Jewish story in a way. Uh, although I do point out, and one cannot overemphasize that this was very unrepresentative. Uh, Eddie was very unrepresentative of his community, either the narrow, you know, the small Jewish community or the you know Jewish community as a whole. He was a crook, and he represented the crook community, not the, not the Syrian Jewish community. One of the big questions I had was, and just kind of the broader scope of of kind of reading the story, it was. How did the banks, the media get this so wrong? And then you see this kind of over and over again, yeah. like almost this pattern, right? I was talking to Harry before about how, you know, it's almost like the precursor to the bigger scams, right? Like, the, and you reference oh, it in the book a little bit of the Madoff, right? It's it's almost the same thing. I was like, but I want to like ask you, like, how did they get it so wrong? And, you know, is there been any like kind of like internal, like, you know, view of how things are different now since then? Mm. Well, things are probably worse now because it's sort of, you know, the financial journalism, I think, is kind of a little going a little bit, you know, there's fewer finance. You know, journalism itself is undergoing a lot of changes and there's, you know, there's staffing is less and so forth and so on. There's less, less investigative reporting in financial journalism. But um, 
I would say financial journalists never really picked up on it because in those days, you know, there really wasn't a tradition of major scandals taking place, you know, masterminded by the CEO. There just wasn't, you know, they had taken place. But generally speaking, if a company could put out a financial report in those days, people would look at it and they'd say, well, okay, so it's doing well, fine. You know, I mean, and to this day, that's true. You put out a financial statement, you look at it, it says 20% profit growth. Okay, yeah, 20% profit growth. Now, Barron's, Parents ran a piece just before the IPO in which they questioned these numbers and they didn't question the validity of the numbers. They said, well, you know, how are they? They've got all these wonderful profit numbers. They didn't really question those. They said, well, how are they going to continue this, this, this uh, enormous profit growth? And they also pointed out a lot of other stuff that was in the um, that was in the uh, the prospectus, which pointed to a lot of this sort of sort of intrafamily schemes, which were really sort of unappealing looking. You know, they had a medical school they financed, and they had all kinds of ridiculous little things, a lot of conflicts of interest, all legal. Everything was legal, and they had to put it. They had to put it in the prospectus. And you know, look, they they read this, but this looks horrible. So there was some coverage, and that initial Barron story did result in a cut in the price of the IPO. Now, the problem was that there was no real follow-up. Since there was no belief, but it was sort of like, you know, there was the, the, it was not believed at the time that Crazy Eddie was actually fraud. There was no evidence, uh, really, that it was fraudulent. So they treated it as a legitimate company. And, and um, you know, until the scandal erupted, there was no investigation. Nobody, you know, a journalist looking at Crazy A would know. Well, you know, this is this is a fraud here. Well, now maybe, maybe the maybe the auditors should have realized there was a there, there was a fraud going on because they had the ability to they had access to the books and they were supposed to be checking the books. But financial journalists don't really have that ability. So it's a bit the same with Madoff. Okay, there was a whistleblower with Madoff, and he did go to journalists. And they kind of ignored him. That did not take place with Crazy Eddie. Nobody, everybody, the family kept things pretty secret. You know, Sammy Antar has since blown the whistle on it, but that was after the trial. That was after all over. While it was taking place, nothing really leaked out from the company. So, financial journalists didn't catch it. And it's not nothing has changed. I mean, there's no reason why uh, a Crazy Eddie couldn't just start up again. Not the Crazy Eddie, but yeah. Something like that. Look at Sam Bankman-Fried. New indictments, by the way, today. New charges just today on Sam Bankman-Fried. Turned out, apparently, as alleged, he's a major swindler. But if you go back, you just rewind a few months, he was treated like a demigod. He was invited to panels. He was, oh, man, he was the greatest thing since uh, sliced bread, you know? And, well, according to the feds, he was running this big... Uh, criminal scheme and yet nobody was really on to it i mean you had some people saying well you know this guy's got to be a crook but there was no real reporting saying oh this man is a crook this is this is what's happening that's what happened you didn't really have that you know even after all the frauds that have taken place even after madoff even after crazy eddie people still give the benefit of the doubt and there is still this this tendency in the financial press in the financial press particularly to elevate billionaires you know, they always say, well, the you know, the media is biased and the media is this, the media is too liberal. But if you go to the financial media, financial media loves billionaires. They elevate billionaires. They always have, and they still do. You you also talk about in the book about how he had this, you know, fantastic kind of PR uh, person. How yeah. much of a role do you think that played? And then you talk about that. 
Well, it helped a lot. You know, he had a guy called Ed Colladin, you know, old style PR guy uh, named Ed Colladin, who sort of smoothed, could have greased the skids and smoothed, smoothed his relations with both the financial press and the um, and analysts. You know, in those days, you know, analysts have been taken down a couple of pegs uh, since the, um, you know, since the uh, dot com uh scandals of early 2000s you know Elliot Spitzer and the dot-com scandals but back in those days uh uh analysts tended to be even more promotional than they are today and Ed Carlton his PR guy served as a sort of a you know interlocutor between Eddie and the media and the financial uh analysts that were that were and are employed by brokerage houses that's you know sell stock sell the stock to the public. Uh, so uh, you need a guy like that. He didn't have one before the IPO, and that's that might be one of the reasons why Barron's was so unkind to him. Uh, I don't know whether Ed Collin could have done anything about the Barron story, but the the I, the bad coverage prior to the IPO and Barron's convinced that, you know, he, he's got to have a, he really needs a, a good PR guy. And he got one in this, this uh, Ed Collin fellow. I just had a, also just a broader question about, you know, Sam Antar and his role and how this all sort of played out. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I wish we kind of had him on as well. Cause like, it would have been more directed to him, but like, do you think that it was from him? Like he talks about how we literally just graduated from college and then it's kind of thrust mm. into this family business. Do you think on his role was just, it was it kind of a nature or nurture thing when he got kind of involved in this scandal? Was it just because, Hey, he just kind of fell into it or like, you know, his culpability was, it was, it was confusing to me in some level of like how, you know, maybe he just felt like this is how, you know, the family operates. I got to protect the family. I, I was confused and I want to kind of get your take on that. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Sam was brought up in the family. You know, the, the the family had a culture, first of all, of skimming. And one of his earliest memories is watching cash pile up on his uncle's uh, uncle's kitchen table. You know, he was he was brought into the business while he was still in college and he was just a kid. You know, Eddie, he started working for Eddie. When he was like 12 years old, you know, at one of the uh, one of his very earliest stores, he was born in 1957. He started working for Eddie in 1969, 1970. You know, he'd been working in the family business for the longest time. So his dedication was to the family, the Antar family. So when the Antar family became involved in crime, well, he, he wanted to show what a great guy he was. I'm going to I'm going to you know, I'm going to show you really how to commit crime. Uh, you know, he was always sort of the nerd, the family's nerd, the account, the little account, accountant, you know. Um, looked up to Eddie. Eddie put him through college. True, it was CUNY. It wasn't Harvard. You know, it wasn't maybe that expensive. And unless he put him through college, paid for all his all his expenses. In fact, encouraged him to go into accounting. He became the family's accountant. You know, it's an excellent example. You know, the way he charmed his cousin Sam. I have to remember also his father was named Sam, so you have to be careful not to confuse the two. The way he sort of charmed Sam, the way he persuaded Sam to come into the, you know, he, he had great powers of persuasion. Eddie had great powers of persuasion to get people to commit crimes, whether it was guys in the warehouses, they inflated the inventories, to his cousin and to get Sam, you know, to motivate Sam to, to really go the, the, the extra, the extra mile to, to work for crazy Eddie and help him commit fraud. And that's how, you know, and that became, uh, you know, the big driver. I mean, Sam became, uh, you know, one of the, the, the brain that he, that he had, you know, Sam, one of the things that Eddie said, you know, I want to have a brain next to me. 
when I'm doing, you know, when I'm running uh, running this company. He never said, I want a brain to help me commit fraud, but that's how it turned out. You know, it, it was a family business. And this was a young cousin, you know, trying to, uh, you know, his, his older cousin, Eddie, was sort of like almost a brother figure, you know, and it was like, you know, to, 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 to make his brother, his cousin, actually, but his bro- cousin was like a brother, make him happy. Very unusual, but a a family arrangement, a little bit more like the mafia than most corporate situations. And that that sort of brings me to kind of one of the last questions here is because it's just, it seems like the story is so much like through his version. And I was just doing a little bit of Google research here and I saw that it's been bouncing around. Has there, is there any update on whether or not, you know, there's a movie in in play here? And like, cause it just seems like the, you know, from his, his story is kind of like the central, like I I would see the movie potentially going, you know, through this cousin who kind of gets enveloped in this whole scandal. Um, But I just wanted to ask you about the latest on that front. Well, you know, there's always been talk of a movie going back years, you know, and, uh, you know, I always get, you know, I'll put it to you this way. I haven't gotten any movie offers today and I'll put it to you that way, you know. So for the day is young, so I could still get a movie off. Uh, you never know. You know, I mean, look, there's there's uh, there's uh, there's always something happening. You know? There's always going to be, you know, whether there's a movie or not, who the hell knows? But there was a big, uh, there was one uh, not that long ago, I believe. Um, a fellow from Taxi, whose name escapes me, was involved. You know, there's always some kind of, you know, you know how it is with De Niro. Films. Yeah. Huh? De Niro? De Niro. De Niro. Not, not De Niro, but no, no, not Taxi. I mean the TV series Taxi. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. Uh, it was that little guy. Uh, yeah, probably. Danny DeVito. Was, Danny uh, DeVito, was yeah. It began with a crazy dad, so there mm-hmm. was that. Yes. So, so, so speaking of Danny DeVito, right? We've been bouncing around lots of stuff here, and there's so much more in the book. Mm. Um, and, and some of this, obviously, hindsight is always 2020. But Crazy Eddie... Not crazy, Eddie. Excuse me. Eddie Antar gets stabbed while he's out one night. It doesn't make yeah. the papers. He's got a Debbie one, who's his wife, and a Debbie two, who's for many years his mistress and ends up his wife while he's keeping Debbie one uh, and Sammy and all sorts of other people in his family on the hook for money that never comes. He has crazy competitors. There's a Meshuggah Ikes that opens mm. in Manhattan. James oh, yeah. Brown is calling him up when he's got tax problems, just calling the King's Highway office and saying, Make me the pitchman. And oh, then yeah. as, as this business blows up, right, you you get into some of the details here. But, like, at one point you note that, like, these Wall Street analysts liked that it felt like the company was pulling the wool over customers' eyes. They were also oh, doing yeah. lots of bait-and-switch stuff. And then you yeah. note, but what they didn't know was that they were the real chumps for swallowing these IPO numbers of this magically more profitable than all the other places stores that has these ubiquitous ads. And somehow every quarter is better than the previous quarter. The prices only get more insane. The finances only look better, you know, right up until the whole thing blows up. Uh, Bo Tittle's in the book. Eddie eventually flees. And this is after the finally he keeps selling out in IPOs. He keeps making more and more money each time there's new stock. And it's generally yeah. a bad sign when you're a CEO and chairman who at one point resigns because of health, whatever, but he's being right there is constantly selling the company's stocks. Like these are big warning signs. And so the financial press is one thing. Barron's at one point, as you mentioned, shows some suspicion, but they can't prove it. Like mm. what's up with these, uh, with these auditors who it sounds like we're, Easily distracted by by young women who are sort of spying on them, and oh, they're looking at this set of inventory. We'll make sure that one stack is right. What's up with these Wall Street analysts? Like all the people who had 
real money on the hook here and and just didn't know or didn't care to the point where this, this did get into the hundreds of millions of dollars that were eventually recovered with Eddie fleeing to Israel um, yeah, yeah. under it, an assumed identity, doing fraud there, finally getting brought back, convicted, having his conviction overturned. So again, in hindsight, this was so obviously unbelievable and unsustainable. And even as they're giving out free t-shirts and their store openings are in events and their ads are everywhere and three in the morning, there's nothing on TV, but the crazy Eddie ads are there. Um, like, like, like to Ravan's question on how this seems to suggest some of what's happening now, like everyone thought someone else was looking or that they were just going to make money. Nobody cared. Is, is that, is that how we got to this point? Well, the auditors were just sort of on autopilot. You know, they, you know, they, they, they were easily manipulated. They were not the brightest, uh, whatever. They're not the brightest bulbs in the pack, shall we say? They sent out these young guys to to watch the uh, the accounting uh, going on, going on the uh, in the warehouses, and these guys were easily manipulated because one of the things they had to do was to inflate the values of the warehouses. It was easy because these guys didn't know what they were doing. You know, it's funny. You were going through a really good litany of everything that was going on in the book. You left out one, which I thought was kind of interesting, is that a guy who became the, the street boss of the Bonanno crime family was at one point working for Crazy Eddie. I mean, there was all these massive, you know, this, all these subplots were like dizzying. They were like running around my head. I mean, this subplot, that subplot. There's a child bride in Lebanon. There's all kinds of all kinds of stuff going on. That would made it such a fascinating story. All this stuff going on. But uh, at bottom, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's kind of an accounting story. It's lousy accountants, stupid auditors. It kind of comes down to bad business. You know, sure, there's a lot of weird stuff, buying stuff from a numbers bank in the Bronx. You know, there's two mafia subplots in this book that are completely unrelated. It's just, you know, just a, a product of doing business in New York and living in New York in the 1970s where the mafia was all over. You got two separate and unrelated mafia subplots taking place at this time. But the denouement, as shall we say, of the book is just lousy auditors and some of the unluckiest takeover artists, I have to say, in the history of Wall Street. Some of the most pathetic individuals bought this company in the belief that it was a good company. I almost feel bad for them, you know. Intelligent people, smart businessmen. I think one of the real ironies of, of, of the book, the way I and I begin with a little snippet from that, is how really legitimate people, smart people, masters of the universe, as they used to be, as they used to be called, really thought. Crazy Eddie was fantastic. It wasn't just the you know the guys buying a stereo on, on King's Highway. It was guys who had billions of dollars uh, available. And they wanted Crazy Eddie. And I begin, in fact, with an anecdote on that. How one of them was um, a fellow named um, fellow named Petri, who was one of the great geniuses of retailing. He wanted to buy, but it, he was such a great guy, such a nice man. That Sam Anton said, "Ah, we can't cheat this guy." I mean, come on. But they swindled everybody. They swindled Wall Street. You know, it was very, uh, I, I just think it's fascinating how they were able to swindle such people. One of the, um, I just wanted to share this one story, and it's kind of slightly related, but I, I was visiting family in Denver when the book came out, and I was, can't remember the last time I was this excited about buying a book, and I generally get stuff out of the library, but I was like, I'm not going to wait. I want to read this. I went to the library. I went to the bookstore in Denver, and thankfully they had it. I actually forgot the title, and they were like, "Oh yeah, the book about Crazy Eddie," in oh. Denver, believe it or not. So um, I got it, and I was reading it on the plane ride coming home, 
And I'm sitting next to a guy and I, you know, I pull that out and I, we just started making, you know, kind of small talk. And I said, Oh, you know, I'm reading this book about crazy. Eddie." he's like, crazy Eddie. I worked for him as a kid. Yeah. Uh, apparently his dad owned a pizza store in Williamsburg and he did some like kind of running with crazy Eddie. And he talked, he told me this hilarious story. You know, I take it for great assault that he was, you know, helping him get some of the stuff like off the docks. Um, and he said at one point, Eddie was like, just thankful. And he gave him this big TV and he told Eddie, he's like, I can't do anything. I can't get it home. Like, what am I supposed to do? He was like, I can't put it in a cab. I can't, it doesn't fit in my car. And he says that Eddie, I don't know if it was Eddie or some one of his staffers brought it to his house in their apartment in Williamsburg. Um, mm. But anyhow, he had like very fond memories of him and he just really appreciated the whole story in the book. So I just, just, just wanted to share that with you. And Yeah, well, there were so many people, I'll tell you. A lot of people came to me after I wrote the book. Uh, one of them was the doctor who treated Eddie Antar at the hospital when he got stabbed. And one thing he told me, which is interesting, I wish I had it in the book, was that you know there were no police. Somehow he, there, were, there was no police interest in the fact that he got stabbed. Everybody but the police came. No police. That's why I wasn't in the papers. I was also amazed just on a personal level of like the relationship he had with Debbie Watt, his first wife. Like that it just it was fascinating to me how he just wasn't able to sort of, you know, even like move on and just like kind of make a clean cut. I know she was tied to the business, but like he was, I mean, there was this bizarre sort of, you know, just deep connection, but also sort of, you know, in this kind of rotten core of it all. But like, you know, like I, I just I part of that was just also absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, Eddie was not what you would describe as Mr. Nice Guy. I'll put it to you that way. You know, he uh, didn't mind hurting people. He didn't mind destroying people if he had to, to get his way. And one of the things that he did was he totally screwed over his his first wife. As a matter of fact, his first wife was in litigation, um, not with Eddie, but with someone else from um, from the Antar family all over her, her marital uh, estate. As recently as like two, three years ago, you know, continuing to fight for her uh, for her rights. Uh, he totally screwed her over, forced her to sign a separation agreement, which was completely one-sided, lied to her and lied to her and lied to her and lied to her. And, you know, what's interesting, though, is how she swallowed those lies. And she was no not a stupid person. She was a school teacher. She swallowed those lies. Um, and. Yeah, she was another example of how Eddie was able to charm the pants off of, of everybody, just about everybody. I just wanted to just wondering if you're working on any other projects as well. Like, you know, what's the next project for you? Or, well, I can't really. I'm not really at liberty to uh, to get into that, unfortunately. You know, people were asking me. You know, in 2020, and when I was working on the book, I couldn't tell them I was working on the book. You know, so. Uh, you know, I'm superstitious, and uh, but it'll be crazy, is what I can say. It'll be crazy. And I know I said this before, but I I can't kind of you know talk about this book enough. It's just it's just incredibly entertaining on multiple levels, just sort of the human level of you know this like this character who is able to sort of as you said kind of charm everyone and mm -hmm. the financial parts of this, uh, you know, the Jewish history parts. It's just. The, you know, the era, the moment, the scam, it just, it just touches on so much. And it's just, it's just an amazing sort of entertaining and, and just incredible read. And I'm actually in a book club here and I'm trying to suggest that, that we read it as well here. So hopefully. Well, thank you. Well, I really appreciate your, uh, your, your uh, liking the book. That's all I can say. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me here too. I might, I might add. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, the book is Retail Gangster, the insane real life story of Crazy Eddie. And it is a blast. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it very much.
F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts for this episode were Ruvain Blau and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimara. A special thank you to our guest, investigative journalist Gary Weiss, the author of Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.